everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Good morning. Welcome. Usually run smoother than that, but we, uh, we're, we're doing things a little bit, uh, a little bit different. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, uh, who here graduated already? Nice. Congratulations. I know some of you graduated. You guys are done with high school. You guys are the best. I remember, remember what that was like. Um, all right, today. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series. For those of you that were not here last week, last week we started a series on uh, uh, d- these different types of sins, specifically addressing what are commonly understood and known as the seven deadly sins. Um, the point of this series, as you can see as the title on the screen, is uh, kill joys, right? It's addressing the things that are killing our joy and understanding how we can have joy. For the next several weeks, we're going to be going over several different sins. And last week, if you were here, can anybody uh, just shout out uh, what that sin was? Pride. Pride. Exactly. Pride. Pride is just one of the biggest issues that humans have, right? It's just another form of sin. Sin being the biggest thing that we struggle with, what separates us from a holy God. And, and, and pride is one of those sins. Pride is, as we said last week, it is a chief of all sins. It's known as that from them. Uh, from there is where all other sins seems to somehow stem from. But last week as we were together, we clarified what pride was just a little bit. Typically, when we talk about pride, we often associate pride with somebody that is regularly, constantly building themselves up, right? That's the stereotypical way that we envision and we see pride as somebody that is very egotistical, somebody that likes to big themselves up, is very lofty, right? Talks about their achievements and and brags about it, looks down upon upon others for it. But we also see that that's just not the only way that pride looks. Pride actually can look the complete opposite way of that, and it's somebody that is constantly tearing themselves down. Why? Because pride is this sense of uh, self-preoccupation. You are the center of attention in both sides, whether it's for a good reason or for a bad reason. Pride wants to take center stage. It's all about you, whether it's good or bad, whatever the reason, however it may be, whatever the circumstances, you are the center of attention. You are more important than everybody else. You try to elevate yourself above others in that sense and even above God or at least at the very least to his level and that's why he despises it. And the solution for pride is not to quote the late now Tim Keller who recently passed away, um, is not to think less of ourselves, not to degrade yourself, not to think that you are like a terrible human being. It's not to think less of yourself, but it's to think of yourself less. And if you're going to think of yourself less, then you have to think of something else more. Um, requires that we are humble. 
to, to solve this issue of pride, we need humility. We need to heed and follow after God's instruction. Jesus says the most uh, important of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And then subsequent to that, it is to love your neighbor as yourself. You can only do that if you're not prideful, if you are humble, if you take your eyes off yourself. Right? And, and we see that these sins that we so often desire, the things that we go to, the things that we look for peace, the things that we often identify with, that people identify us by, right? they may give us this false sense of, of enjoyment, of happiness, of joy. It gives us an illusion of it, but really, as we see here, it's only killing our joy. Again, Romans 8.13, it'll be on the screen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live so we have to fight against these sins. We have to kill what is killing our joy. And today we're going to continue that series um, that we begun last week. We're going to continue to talk about these different sins that we face in our lives, these ugly parts of our lives, and expose them, address them, talk about them so that we can uh, combat them, right? And the one that we're going to be talking about today, as we started last week, I shared a few quotes to kind of give us a big idea or an understanding of what the sin is. I'm going to do the same thing today. And for this sin in particular, these are a few of the things that have been said about it, all right? It's a sorrow which one entertains at another's well-being because of a view that one's own excellence is in consequence lessened. Keep following along here. Jonathan Edwards, he says this about this sin. It is a spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity or happiness of other people. Aristotle, a name that should be familiar to you, says that it is pain at the sight of others' good fortune stirred by those who have what we ought to have. And lastly here, I want to share something that Nathaniel Vincent says in regards to the temper of this type of individual. He says the happiness of another is his misery. The good of another is his affliction. He looks upon the virtue of another with an evil eye and is as sorry at the praise of another as if that praise were taken away from himself and makes him a hater of his neighbor and his own tormentor. The sin we're talking about here, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is envy. Envy is a sin we're going to be talking about this morning let me give you a little bit more clarification on envy. Here are a few definitions of envy and what it means. It'll be on the screen for you. Envy is a desire to deprive others of their desire. It is, you know, you see there that deprive means to deny or to strip somebody of their desire. It also means a feeling of unhappiness and fortune of others. Painful and resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by somebody else. An insatiable desire for what others have, despising them for having it. An insatiable desire. You can't satisfy it. It's impossible. Nothing's enough, right? Even if you attain it, you're always going to have this envy in you because you're never really going to receive and, and get what you're looking for. Uh, at its most basic level of understanding, envy, to put it this way, is to be sad because something good is happening to somebody else. Now, let me ask you this. 
Who here has a sibling? Raise your hand. All right, most of you, if not everybody. Now, raise your hand again, or keep your hand raised, if you have a younger sibling. Okay, there's a lot of you with younger siblings. Listen, I don't know if it was like this in your house. I don't know. It could be the complete opposite. But I will tell you this, at least from my own experience, I must say my younger siblings had it so incredibly easy, right? Can I get an amen, right? Our younger siblings, man, they have not been, they have not walked in my shoes. They don't know what I've been through. They don't know what I've gone through, the things I've had to do to earn what, I, what I've received from my parents in my life. Um, I remember, obviously, that growing up, it felt that way, that my siblings had it good. Anything they wanted, they got it. They were younger than me. Uh, you know, it was like they were, you know, the, the blessed child, whatever it was. For whatever reason, I felt envy in my heart. It's pretty clear that I, the root of that problem was envy. The things they got, the things that I wanted, um, even to the point where, you know, I kind of, got mad at them for having it because of the treatment they received, the things they got. I was mad at them. And obviously, as you would assume, maybe in your own relationships with your siblings, that is what causes some strife and a little bit of argument there. But I can think of one very clear example of this. It was a little bit later on in life, and it was when my sister finally got to the age where she can drive, right? Now, to give you some context, growing up, I always drove, like, cars that were passed down to me. I never actually got a car. My parents never bought me a car. The only cars that I had were uh, the cars that um, our family friends had given to my family. Or if a family relative or friend had passed away and they had an extra car and they weren't going to use it anymore, so they gave it to my family because they knew that I needed a car. And so I had a few different cars like this, and I upgraded that way. Uh, um, And then... Yeah, it got to the point where my sister, of course, could drive a car, and I assume, well, she's probably going to take my car, or probably going to look for something. If anybody's going to get a car, you know, probably me, get a nice little upgrade, it's about time. And they went and bought her a brand, not a brand new car, but they bought her a really nice car. <laughs> they got her like this red BMW. Well, listen, it's not like an S-Class, it wasn't like a top-tier car, but it was... It was definitely enough to make me go pretty, get pretty upset. Right? I was like, well, listen, first of all, don't tell her I said this, but she's not the best driver either. All right? But anyways, I was like, listen, you're going to give her the, this really nice car. She's going to wreck the car. Why, why does she deserve this car? What did she do to earn? This is her first ever car. She's learning how to drive. She's going to get this car. If anybody should get this car, it should be me. If anything, I should get this car, and she should take my old one right? It's, it's only right. It only seemed fair. I had, I'd never gotten a car for myself. How come she gets this? And what did she do? What, what makes her so special? And I, and I, I maybe didn't vocalize it. I didn't, I didn't say it. I was a little bit older, so thankfully I was a little bit more mature. But inside, I envied her for it. I was like, man, she doesn't even know how to drive. And every time she would get in a little fender bender or she would scratch it, that would only compound itself. It would only get worse. Like, I told you, I knew this was going to happen, and it only made it worse. And that envy grew. I think that in a lot of cases in our lives, we are envious and we don't realize it. And a lot of us struggle with envy. Um, It may not be with our siblings, right? 
It may, you may not have siblings, you might not have a younger sibling, but whatever the case may be, it could be as simple as a friend getting an opportunity that you thought you deserved. And you envy that individual. And envy, it happens when, it's not just a possession, but it happens when an individual maybe has this special quality or this trait, or they have, they do have a possession, or they have an achievement. They've done something. And you don't just desire it for yourself. You actually get to the point that you wish that someone else didn't have it. Does that make sense? And that's what distinguishes envy from other things that we, that we see that are very similar, like jealousy, for example. Jealousy is not to be confused with envy. Jealousy is oriented towards the possessions that we have, the things that we own, and the effects that others have on that. Um, but envy is geared towards and focuses on what other people have. It has nothing to do with what we have. And, and then, even further than that, covetousness is also another thing that we know of, you know, to covet something. But that's also different than envy. Because when you covet something, right, you, you, you covet something because you want what somebody else has. But envy is even more so than that. You're actually angry that they have it. You don't just want what they have. You're not just coveting it. But envy is you, you actually, to some extent, have some hatred and animosity towards that individual because they have what you don't. For whatever reason, that causes this rivalry in us. It goes beyond the possession itself, and actually it targets the individual. And last week we talked about pride, and in a way this is similar to pride because it's rooted in selfishness. While one is a selfish rebellion and you look down upon others with arrogance, the other is you looking above and looking around you with hatred. Uh, envy, it evokes comparison, this uh, this perverse comparison with oneself and with others. It, it involves criticism, ingratitude. It involves also complaining, right? This ungodly preoccupation with others and what they have. And not just that, again, it doesn't end there. Hatred. You're actually angry towards the blessings of others. And if we're being honest with ourselves, there are times that that is us. And if we look at Scripture, perhaps the best, and maybe not the best, but one of the best examples that we have of this, of envy, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. You can turn there if you would like. It's also going to be on the screen, some of the verses, but I would recommend you open up your Bible so you have the full piece of Scripture in its entirety. I'm not going to highlight every part of it, but we're going to go over and maybe give you a general idea of what that chapter says. In this chapter, we see a story between David and Saul, right? The current king of Israel and the one that is to be. At this point in the story, Samuel has already anointed David as the next king of Israel. Uh, they'd already gone into battle. David, at this point, has already uh, defeated Goliath. That's a story we all know pretty well, David and Goliath. I mean, unless you live under a rock, you've never heard it, but that's something that we know, of course. David has already done this, and now this is, you know, the backdrop for the story is them returning from 
from that battle. And you can see here that in chapter 18, what's interesting is that upon leaving this battle with the Philistines, the battle doesn't quite stop for David. Because a new enemy, in, in a sense, arises. And this new enemy is not a Philistine like Goliath. This new enemy is actually Saul. David's success, as we'll continue to read here, it actually challenges Saul's ego and his self-esteem to the point where he begins to envy David. And as you read here in chapter 18, or chapter 18 verse 6, which is on the screen, as you can see, we find that when the army is returning to Jerusalem, that these women come out to meet the men that had been at war, um, and they're coming out from all the cities. So there's a lot of people, right? It's not just the local people. It's everyone. They're coming to welcome them, greet them. They're coming to meet the men, coming to meet King Saul. Um, and when they, when they arrive, when everybody is there, they start to sing, and the words that they sing strike a nerve in Saul. As you can see here, it says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Uh, and this is what they say. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And when Saul hears this, as you can imagine, he starts to get pretty angry. I think at this point, Saul, he realizes as much as everybody else, he starts to see that David is increasingly becoming more and more popular, probably more popular than Saul at this point. And you would probably presume that Saul, he was most likely expecting a party, right? He was most likely expecting a celebration upon his return. But not only is he having to share those celebrations with somebody else, that other person is actually taking the limelight away from him. He's still in the show, right? Imagine, you know, I, I think I've seen this in a movie or something, and it just seems very movie-like. But, you know, imagine like a person's throwing a birthday party, right? And they're having a birthday party. And, oh, yeah, everybody's celebrating me. And then the cool kid walks into the party. And everybody's like, oh, look, it's, it's James. Oh, it's James. And you're kind of left alone. And you're like, oh, well, what about me? You know, it's my birthday. You know, it's not his birthday. It's my birthday. But all the attention shifts. And you would assume that it, the temptation there would be pretty envious because you want that attention. You, you think that, does, that, that that attention should be driven towards you. You're the one that deserves it. That's what he's starting to feel here. He's like the older brother in the prodigal uh, story that we heard not too long ago in that parable, right? That older brother, he doesn't just want to not join the party. He doesn't think his brother doesn't deserve a party. He actually thinks if anybody deserves a party, it should be me. I'm the one that stayed. And so when he realizes that he is being outdone by David, he becomes angry. And he becomes very dramatic about it, of course. And you actually see that in verse 9, it says, from that moment on, he would eye David, right? It says that, and Saul eyed David from that day on, meaning he creates this rivalry with David starting from that day. He creates it out of this bitterness, this false sense of injustice. And as you continue to read, you see that he begins to hope and plan for David's demise. And he starts to map it out, to plot it out, and we see that in several cases, 
just like envy works in all of our lives, envy doesn't just sit around sometimes and wait for somebody's downfall. It actually starts taking action steps towards it. You continue to read in this chapter, and you'll see that initially, Saul, he is content with David's success. He brings him into his home, right? Not only that, but on top of that, he's the one that sets him out in his position over all the men of war. He's the one that gives him the promotion to begin with. But once envy takes a hold of him, you see in verse 11, Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. He physically attacks David. He, he, he makes two attempts at David's life. Fortunately for David, David escapes both times. He, he is unharmed. But because of that, he sees very clearly that the Lord is with David and he becomes fearful. And so he sends him away. And as time goes on, you continue to read that it became more and more obvious that the Lord continued to bless David and he grew more and more fearful. And because of that, he realizes that his plan of attack was not working, and so he changes his plan. Instead of now trying to make these attempts on his life, these direct attempts, he actually decides to do something else. He tries to be cunning about it. He starts to flatter David. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've ever done that or if you've seen that in a movie, maybe seen something like it. Um, one example of this is another classic. Uh, we have any Disney uh, lovers in the house. You guys like Disney movies? Some of you. Well, I thought more of you was going to raise your hand, but that's all right. You know the story I'm talking about, though. The story is the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, right? Uh, again, you must know that. Even if you despise Disney, you know that story. Um, but in that story, there is a villain. The villain in that story is this evil queen, right? Initially, she makes an attempt on Snow White's life. She says, Mirror, Mirror, who's the fairest of them all? And she's like, oh, it's not me. All right, no problem. Let me go figure that out. Makes, makes an attempt to kill Snow White. Doesn't work. So then she becomes a little bit more uh, clever. She makes this whole, like, concoction. She drinks this thing to make herself look like an old, raggedy old lady um, to go deceive Snow White. And actually, it's interesting because I think that, that old, raggedy lady really shows what her true inside looks like. It's ugly. But anyway, she goes and she arrives at Snow White's house and she gives her this apple and she tries to deceive her and she tries to, you know, convince her, hey, there's this apple that's going to grant you anything that you want. Here, take it. You know, I'm, I'm, this is a gift. I care about you. You know, I, I want to bless you. Here you go. She makes an attempt to flatter Snow White, but really she's plotting against her all along. This is a poisonous apple, right? We know that she takes a bite and she dies. Really doesn't die. Somehow. Anyways, Saul in this case, Saul in this case, he realizes his plan initially wasn't going to work. I can't physically attack this man. The Lord is with him, so I'm going to flatter him. I'm going to be smarter than him, smarter than God even. He decides to give David his daughter as a wife, but under one condition. He says this, only be valiant for me and fight for the Lord the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now follow with me here. The marriage offer that seemed like a gesture of kindness, right? It seemed nice of him, obviously, and 
It showed perhaps on the outside Saul's goodness. Maybe David thought, oh, I'm forgiven. Saul's gotten over it. This is nice. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Instead, what he was trying to do was set up a trap. He was trying to still kill David, but just in a totally different way. You see here, back then, there was this thing called a, a dowry. And, and it required that whenever you were to give your, you know, your daughter away to marriage, the son or whoever was coming to marry the, the daughter actually had to make a payment in order to marry this woman. And, the, of course, the bride's father, as you can imagine, the more prestigious that he was, the more valuable her hand in marriage would become. And if you know David, you know that David comes from a very humble family. He is a shepherd. He doesn't have much. He can't make any payment. He can't afford to pay for the, for the king's daughter. And so what he says is, hey, you don't have to pay me, but just do one thing. You have to give me the head of, pretty much. You have to kill a hundred Philistines. That is your payment. That is the payment that you have. And that's why he says, listen, let not my hand be upon him. I'm not going to be able to kill him. I haven't been able to. Instead, he's going to have to go kill a hundred Philistines. Good luck doing that. He's going to die doing that instead. That way he dies, no problem. I get what I want, but it's not on my hands. And David, when he hears this offer... He is humbled. He says this to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I, have, that I should have a son-in-law to the king? David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? King Saul had lied to David. He, he had made mention to them. He told the servants to go tell David, Hey, I delight in you. The king has found favor in you. All of the people love you. The king loves you. His family loves you. His servants love you. And all the while, what he wanted to do was spy on him and ultimately see him die, to see him wither away at the hands of the Philistines. But would you believe it? David goes out and he comes back having killed 200 Philistines instead of 100. He comes back. <laughs> and Saul's probably incredibly distraught because his plan once again has failed. And it was very clear, if it wasn't already before, it is very clear now that the Lord was with David. And he feared David even more, but that fear didn't bring him to a place of repentance or reconciliation. It only fueled his hatred for him even more. He only wanted to kill him even more, and he became more zealous about it, more bold and blatant about it. He actually gets to the point now, in the beginning of the next chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 19, where he goes to his family, he goes to his servants, he goes to his son, and he says, hey, I think we should kill David. Before he's kind of internalizing this, there's this bitterness, this hatred in his heart, but it's gotten to the point now, this envy has eaten him alive, that he's actually verbalizing, telling everybody, hey, I need it, we should kill this guy, he's no good. And that's, that's what happens to us. What, one thing that we can see in this story is very clear, and it, it seems very obvious, but Saul was kind of insane. He's kind of out of his mind. But it's because envy itself is very irrational like other sins. It has the ability to, 
take root in your heart and make you do things that you would never even imagine. You could never even think of. And yet, because it has such a control in your life, you end up doing these things. If you look back at this chapter, if you look at chapter 18, you see several different things in the way that envy operates. The first thing is this. Envy follows success. Envy follows success. Just like thunder follows lightning, envy follows success. The thing that provoked Saul's envy towards David was his success at all odds. In all of his undertakings that we see in verse 14, David was successful because God's hand was upon him. The people, they loved him. We see that in the, in the songs they sang about him, that his daughter loved him, his son loved him, his servants, everybody did love him, and he envied him because of it. Envy is attracted to success, and it begs the question, why not me? Is that something you've thought? Why not me? When you see the success of others, when you see their achievements, when you see the things that they do, the things that they have, and you say, why not me? Why them? The second thing we see is envy operates close to home. Right? It's no surprise that a lot of the feuds that we have within our families, our, our friends, a lot of the situations that we face are affected by envy because envy, it targets our closest relationships first. To the point where fellowship with certain individuals is near impossible. We have a tendency to envy those in proximity to us who resemble us in some ways and participate in similar things that we do. Our peers. There's this quote from Joseph Heller that says this, There's nothing so numbing as someone no better than you achieving more. We may say it when our peers or our friends, they get better grades than you. Maybe there's a spot on a team or a play, and there's only one spot and there's two of you, and they get it. What is your reaction? If they're given an opportunity that you wanted, they're more successful than you. They're cooler than you. They're better looking than you. They're more popular than you. What is your response? Right? You don't really care about the people that are a million miles away, the people on social media, because we never actually see those people. But the people in your schools, the people that you're around, those are the people that you're envious towards. Lastly, we see in the story as well, envy is corrupted form of imitation. This particular form of desire involves a person desiring an object that is desired and another person who gives the object its value by desiring it first. Let me explain what that means. On a macro level, we see this all the time. Right? Imagine a pair of clothing. Nobody cares for it. Nobody wears it. But then all of a sudden, Senor Kanye West or whoever puts it on, wears it, and they're like, oh, my goodness, that's the thing. Everybody starts wearing it because who? The individual that put it on is the one that gave it its value. That's essentially what happens with envy. You move from wanting to be like the model to competing with them to wanting to replace them. More often than not, we don't want the object itself, but instead we want the joy and the blessings of the other individual, which is why envy leaves us so empty and unhappy because the more we try to compete and crave and lust after the happiness of others, the more that it evades us. We see here a complete opposite in this story as well, however. We see Jonathan, Saul's son, who wasn't concerned about his future throne, he didn't want to replace David. 
and said he loves him. As you read chapter 18, you see the relationship that Jonathan has with David, how he supports him, how he defends David before his father. He, he could have been envious. He had all the reason to. David was going to be king. And technically, as the son of the current king, he deserved to be in that position one day. He should have been. But David, who was anointed as the next king, he, instead of being envious of him, he loves him and cares for him. He supports him. He is the complete contrast of his father. I want us to ask ourselves this morning as we close, how do we respond to the blessing and success of others? Do you complain about it? Do you gossip about it? Do you talk about how they don't deserve it? Or do you celebrate them? Do you do both? And if you do both, think about what that means. When your friends or your family succeed or are blessed, are you the person's biggest supporter or their biggest critic? Do you communicate how excited you are for them? Or do you look at them with resentment? Again, this whole series is based on us being honest with ourselves, being able to ask these questions and reflect in our own lives. Fortunately, there is an answer here. We do have hope as believers. We can hope in the cross of Jesus who forgives us of all our sins if we confess our sins to him. God is gracious. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, For by the grace of God I am what I am. We can give thanks at all times and for everything because of his goodness. Because his goodness is effective against envy. You see, grateful people, they don't have time to be envious. They don't have the tendency to envy others because there's no room for it. There's no place for it in their hearts. As grateful people, we give thanks to God for what he gives us, but not just us, but for others as well. A sign of a, a regenerative heart a changed heart is somebody that is able to be thankful for the kindness of God, not just for the things that he gives you and he's blessed you with, but how he blesses others around you, the people in your life, the people that you love. Are you thankful for them? Do you, do you express how excited you are for when others succeed, even if it's at your own expense? Or are you somebody that, you know, is selfish and, and wants that for yourself to the point that you even despise that other person because you don't think they deserve what you deserve. It should be you instead of them. If that's you today, look to the cross. Again, be honest with yourself and go before God. Don't be a person that is envious, but be somebody that is grateful and loving. Be like Jonathan, not, De uh, not Saul. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you again for the uh, truth that we find in your word, that we can be honest with ourselves and challenge ourselves with scripture. Uh, I pray that if anybody here struggles with envy, that if we have the tendency to envy others, Lord, that we put ourselves first and we want things for ourselves and, and push others away because they have those things and we go angry towards them. I pray that if there's any reconciliation that needs to take place, I pray that we would go out of our way to do that, to apologize and to forgive, whatever it may be, Lord. 
I, I pray that we would not be characterized as envious people, but loving and gracious and supporting people to be like Jonathan, not like Saul. Lord, we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, good morning, and citizen. Hope you guys have a great day. You guys have a wonderful afternoon. Enjoy this nice weather.